0: One of the most heartbreaking conversations that I've had in, in a very long time uh, was with a woman who uh, had an adult son who was very hostile against the gospel and against Jesus. And she had become so discouraged in her conversations with this wayward and hardened and hostile son uh, that she said she was ready to give up praying for him. She thought, there, there is, he has gone so far, there's, there's no hope that he will ever come back I'm not sure it's worth it for me to ever pray for him again. And as my heart broke for her and as we talked, uh, I did what probably many of you are hoping she would do to urge her to continue praying for that son. Uh, I hope you would urge somebody like that to continue praying for someone they loved who was hardened against the gospel. Uh, And I bring it up because some of you know that discouragement personally. Some of you have fathers or mothers or brothers or sisters or sons or daughters or coworkers who are not just nonchalant and unwilling to respond to the gospel, but who are openly hostile to it, who who have a bone to pick with the church, or have a bone to pick with Jesus, or want to talk about how full of errors the Bible is and pick at the Bible. Enemies who oppose themselves to Jesus Christ, and yet they are your loved ones who you plead with God will come to Christ. Now, I bring them up because Jesus' words that we're going to read today are directed to people just like that, Uh, people who have made it their business to oppose Jesus, not just to not receive his good news, but to oppose it and oppose him. And so as we look at it, uh, my prayer is that for many of you who know someone just like this, the Lord will equip you in your conversations with them, that he will renew your zeal as you bring the gospel to them and as you pray for their souls. Uh, And also, at the same time, we have to assume there may be some of you here who are that very person. Maybe someone drug you here and you don't want to be here this morning because you sit in opposition to Jesus and to his claims about himself. You would like to argue with him. You certainly want to argue with his people. And by God's kindness, you are here today. And I want you to know that the Lord speaks directly to you this morning in these words that we read. Uh, I say that to start off on one hand so we can know what we might get out of it this morning, uh, but also because there are many people who are afraid these words are about them, and they want to come back and receive forgiveness, uh, but they fear they cannot. The reason I say that is because we're about to read Jesus saying that the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. And there are many out there, I have talked to them, who are afraid they have done just that and would like to be forgiven but don't believe that it's available to them. Uh, The real tragedy here is that those who are afraid of Jesus' words here are not the ones he is talking to. He is talking to those who are hardened against him and speaking in opposition to him. So if you are one of those who tremble in fear when we read these words, I I will speak to you at the end of this sermon, but know that we are going to spend most of our time focusing on the very sort of person that Jesus is speaking to, his open and hostile opponents. Let's look together at Mark chapter 3. We're going to read verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is a warning to those who would resist the good news of Jesus Christ. And I have been praying, I continue to pray even now as I say this, that the Lord would use it in many of your lives as you speak with and love those in your life who oppose the gospel of Jesus, that he would give you a renewed zeal and fervor to bring the gospel to them and to pray for their souls. And at the same time, if there be any here today, and I assume that there must be some here today who would say, yeah, I'm against that message, I am against that Jesus, my prayers that the Lord would use this warning to soften your heart to draw you into his kingdom and lead you into eternal life. Uh, I will be honest and say I hope this is an uncomfortable sermon for you if you are an opponent of Jesus Christ. But I hope for that because I love you and I want you to taste the eternal lives that many around you have tasted as well. Uh, Would the Lord lead you to eternal life this morning as we look at this warning? Now, the warning revolves around those who resist Jesus and resist his message. And so I'm going to talk a lot about resisting him, being opposed to him, being opposed to his message. And so I need to tell you first who he is and what his message is. What exactly is it that these people are resisting? And could I be one of them? Well, here's who Jesus is, and here is his message. Jesus is God-made man, to put it as simply as possible. He is very God of very God wrapped up in human flesh, who came to earth in a man's body, walked to the earth, and lived a life that people could see, shake hands with touch, and hear speak. In that life, he never once sinned against God. And then, though he had never sinned, he willingly died. Uh, that is important because only those who sin against God are worthy of death. And he with no sin in himself at all still willingly chooses to die. He does that so that all who would trust in him can receive forgiveness for their sins. His perfect death pays for our sinful death if we would trust in him. And that is his message, an open call to anyone who is willing. Come, return to me, he says, receive forgiveness from my hand. And so his call is that if you would like to be forgiven for all of your sins, reconciled with God forever in an unbreakable bond, he calls you to trust him to earn that forgiveness for you. And that's the call I make to you right now. If you would receive it, even now, even if you've heard it many times and refused it before, it is there freely available. Jesus stands ready to forgive you if you would trust him in faith. That's his message, and that's who he is. And there are some of you who would hear that and would say, "Mm, I'm not there yet. And there are others who would hear it and say, "Well, yeah, but what about, mm?" and we would have arguments against the Bible, against Jesus, against the good news, against the church, those are the ones that Jesus is speaking to today. Those who would openly criticize the Son of God and the Word of God and the Church of God. We have in Jesus' words a warning to those very people. And I'll split it into two, two warnings, and I'll tell you what they are first and then we'll spend a lot of time in each one. The first warning is very simply that arguing with Jesus is a losing game. And the second warning is that there is a point of no return that if you are in opposition to him, you are in danger of crossing at any moment. We'll look at that first one first. Arguing with Jesus is a losing game. We see that in the experience that these scribes have when they come to argue with Jesus. We see it in verses 22 through 27, which in many Bibles form one paragraph. Verse 22 reintroduces the scribes into the story. The scribes are a recurring character in the gospel of Mark, and if you have read the Bible a lot, you may be familiar with the Pharisees. The scribes are similar to the Pharisees, and they function in just about the same way in the story, so you can make a lot of parallels and say, okay, they are about like those Pharisees. In fact, even some of the scribes are Pharisees. There's a little overlap, but they are a little bit different. Who they are is they are the main teachers in Israel. They're the ones that have access to the Holy Scriptures, that have access to Israel's law, and they stand in the temple and the synagogues, open it up, and speak it and teach it to people. And that's a very important role in that day, even more important perhaps than it is today because unlike all of you who have access to your own Bibles, the people that day didn't really have access to it. They had to go to the scribes to hear even what the book said, which they could not in most cases read for themselves. The trouble was they were using that position both poorly and selfishly to advantage themselves. And so the story has unfolded a little bit. They have shown up a few times in the narrative. Uh, First in chapter one of Mark, Jesus stands up and teaches in the place where the scribes usually teach. And the people are amazed because he teaches with authority, not like the scribes do. Now, that's really cool if you're one of the people here in Jesus, and that's really cool if you're Jesus. That's not so fun if you're a scribe, right? You're one of the ones that he steps up in your place and shows up with his superior and more authoritative teaching. So there's a little bit of a rift between him and the scribes. And so after that, Jesus starts to begin his ministry in earnest. He begins to heal people. And the scribes are showing up time and time again, basically heckling him with an argument against him or an accusation with him. Oh, look at these sinners he's hanging out with. Oh, look at this thing he did. Anytime he turns around, they seem to be coming back with more and more serious accusations against him. Meanwhile, he's drawing bigger and bigger crowds, and to make matters worse for them, he's healing people. Now they are trying to compete with this Messiah figure who not only outteaches them, but heals people in front of them and on one occasion even uses a healing to win an argument against them. So they're just loss after loss. They're getting frustrated with him. So they come back in this case with an even more serious accusation. This is a common move among people who have baseless accusations to bring people. You don't come back with a more bulletproof accusation. You come back with a more serious accusation that is equally empty to the lies you've been breathing before. That's what, they do here. They elevate the game. It used to be Jesus is hanging out with sinners. You guys shouldn't listen to him. That was their argument before. Now they up the stakes. Verse 22 shows us that. They come down from Jerusalem, and they were saying, meaning they're kind of spreading this everywhere, saying it often, he's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So their accusation is he's able to do these miracles because he's possessed by a demon. You guys shouldn't listen to them, right? That's kind of what they're saying there. Jesus then, against this very serious but baseless accusation, in verse 23, shows how ridiculous their charge is in six English words, which is only five words in Greek because the word cast out" is one word there. So five words in the language that he speaks it there shows how ridiculous they are how can Satan cast out Satan, right? In our day, we would say, mic drop, right? Boom, argument over, right? In five words, he has destroyed their argument and their accusation. He's saying, how could I be working for Satan if I am overthrowing his kingdom, no, no, that's the opposite of what I am doing. So he repeats this a few times, elaborates on it in the next three verses, which are 24, 25, and 26. And then he changes tone in verse 27. In 27, he takes their argument and turns it on its head, actually using it to show why they must listen to him. His words can be tough for us to understand. He says in verse 27 No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Unless he binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So, this is a roundabout way of saying, I am demonstrating that I am stronger than Satan. That's basically what he's saying. So, what he does then is he takes their argument. Okay, they're saying Satan is here and this Jesus figure is working under him, right? He's saying, that can't be because I'm overthrowing him. No, actually, Satan is here and I am above him and more powerful than him. He says, I'm not doing this because I'm working for him. I'm doing this because I overcame him. I bound up the strong man and now I walk through his house and I plunder whatever treasure I want to. Here you, be healed, there's another treasure, right? I take whatever I want back from him because I'm stronger than him and I have power over them. So, in just a few sentences, he has gone from destroying their argument quickly to actually using it to disprove all of their other claims. And this is a picture of what it's like to argue with Jesus. You will come with your very best, and he will, he's that kung fu master That you throw a punch at him and he will take the force of your own punch and use it to throw you on the ground. You will come at him with your best shot and you will not even know how you got on the ground so quickly. This is what it looks like to argue with the Lord of the universe. And so that paragraph there is a warning against it. That's what it's like to argue with him. Now that speaks a word to the Christians in the room. Uh, it ought to, as I said earlier, renew our zeal and our fervor as we pray for those we know who are hardened against the gospel. Because we have here a picture of the trajectory that they are on. They may be smarter than you and be winning arguments against you, but the day will come when they have their day before Jesus, when they argue before Jesus himself. And they will not win that argument no matter how many times they have won an argument against you. And so what you, what you must do, Christian, is you must first cling to Jesus, the Lord of the universe, who we saw here has power over Satan and will win the day when it is over with, and bring the good news to that friend, that loved one, that brother, sister, father, with a renewed fervor. Because you do not want them to wind up like these scribes before Jesus bringing their arguments and losing Handily. That is not what we want for any of our loved ones. So pray for them and bring the gospel to them. It gives us a picture and some insight also into what is going on in the hearts of those loved ones we have that oppose Jesus and the gospel. We see in the scribes' actions a common tendency among God's opponents, which is to bring empty accusations against God's people, against God's servants, and against God Himself. Uh, This has been happening since the beginning of time, almost. We can go all the way back to Genesis 3, where the serpent, the enemy of God, brings to Eve an empty accusation against God. God knows that if you eat the fruit, you'll become like him, right? God's not looking out for you. You can't trust him. Empty accusation. And we find out later in that chapter that it's a losing game for the serpent, It is promised to him one day a descendant of that woman will crush your head, right? This is how it goes for God's enemies. There is a tendency to bring empty accusations against him and his people, and it is always a losing game for them. This happens again to Pharaoh in Egypt, right? He is before Moses, or maybe Moses is before him. And Pharaoh says to Moses, no, you don't want to go out into the desert so that you can worship your God. You want to go out in the desert because you're lazy. The people of Israel are lazy, right? He brings this empty accusation against the people who are working themselves to the bone to make bricks for him. And it's a losing game. All of his accusations of their laziness are not going to stop the plagues. He is going up against the God of the universe with his empty accusation against God's servants and it is a losing game for him. We see this over and over again in the Bible. King Saul, after he sort of splits and has his rift with God and becomes very much an enemy of God, sees David rise up and he brings an empty accusation to him, right? He's a traitor, he's betraying me, he's gonna to try to take the throne from me. None of this is true, David is loyal to him. Yet Saul continues to breathe out the lies against him, and it is a losing game. There is no way that he will ever win. Eventually, he falls on his own sword. His dynasty is over, and David rules in his place. This goes from beginning to end in the Bible, is my point. God's enemies tend to bring empty charges against him and his people, and it's always a losing game. We see this today as well. You've probably heard charges against the church, against the Bible, against God himself. Uh, I could litter out a hundred of them now if I really wanted to. Uh, Let me just point out one and show you how empty it is. Have you ever heard the charge that Christianity is a white man's religion? Have you ever heard that one? I I have. Uh, All right, it advantages white people, it advantages white men, it's a tool to oppress women and oppress minorities. That's what Christianity, that's the charge, right? You want to know the truth? Christianity, biblical Christianity, that is believing the Bible, is literally the most diverse belief system in the entire world. Believed upon by people in more locations around the world of wider variants of skin tones from different colors of both genders all over the world than any other belief system, religion or otherwise in the world. It is more popular among women than it is among men so much that men like Walter, when they were preaching, had to face the charge that Christianity was for women and children, right? It was for the weak. That was the charge then. Now the charge is, is the opposite, right? It is more popular among women than it is among men. In America, it is more common to go to church among the black population than among the white population. Did you know that? To dismiss it as a white man's religion is to dismiss the single mom who is found in Jesus someone who will never leave her and will never die. To dismiss it as a white man's religion is to discount the long, now 200-plus-year heritage of the black church, finding hope in the God of the Bible who sets the captives free. What an empty and baseless accusation. And yet, God's enemies are going to bring it out, aren't they? This is the way that it goes. And the point I'm making here is that it took me, what, maybe two, three minutes to unpack all of that. Jesus can do it in four words if he wants to. When those who bring that accusation go before Jesus, I can just see him saying, what about me? I'm not a white man, right? Boom, argument over. This is how easily Jesus wins arguments with his opponents, and that serves as a warning to those who would go against him. All of these empty accusations are this way. I mean, the accusation that Christianity is on the wrong side of history, how is that going to look at the end of history when Christ shows up, right? That's a losing game right there, and it always is to bring arguments against him. So Christians, be encouraged. Know that your Lord will be victorious in every argument that he has, even if you lose the arguments with those you love pray for their souls and bring the gospel to them with a renewed fervor. Let me me turn my attention to any of you in the room who might be those very opponents, any of you who just got real mad at everything I just said there. Oh, but you don't know about this, but what about this? I got this argument against you, right? I want you to see here in these words who your argument is with. Because you know, concretely in reality, I know you're arguing against institutions and you're arguing against people and you're arguing against ideas, but I want you to see that the heart of your quarrel is with Jesus of Nazareth. It is with this person here. And what I want you to see in it is that you may be today arguing with this person and winning and then going and finding that Christian online who doesn't know their stuff and defeating them and then, you know, some Christian who does know their stuff knocks on your door and you talk to them and you defeat them in an argument too and then you argue with somebody else and you feel like you won even though you don't realize you're actually lost and you, you can go through this string for your whole life. Here is what you don't see coming. Your last argument will be with Jesus himself. As he looks at these scribes and calls out to them, he will one day call your name as well. And when you have that final argument with him, it will go about as well as it went for these scribes here. That's the first warning. Arguing with Jesus is a losing game. Turn, receive the gospel, and be forgiven. Let's look at the second warning. I wish I were done, but I'm not. The second warning is even more serious than the first. There is a point of no return, which if you are in opposition to Jesus, you are in danger of crossing at any moment. So be warned. We see this in verses 28 through 30, words that, as I mentioned earlier, have brought trouble on a lot of souls, and I do intend to deal with that as well. Truly I say to you, he says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. As you read those words, I wonder if you have two questions. Most people have two questions. One, okay, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And then two, why does he say that if you do that, you'll never be forgiven? I'm just going to assume those are the two questions you have, and we'll deal with it in that order there. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit first? What's he talking about? Well, first let's talk about blasphemy. Blasphemy is an especially demeaning insult. Uh, We all know how to insult and revile each other, right? We were all trained well on the playground about how to do that, right? When we have hatred in our heart for people, we tend to revile and insult them. It's always wrong, but... I bet in your intuition, you probably have a sense of okay there 's insults, and then there 's like a line that you don 't cross right it 's possible, even though you shouldn 't be insulting each other in the first place it 's possible to go too far and give them an especially demeaning insult. We might think of two boys who are on the soccer field two eight year olds kicking the ball back and forth and uh, one of them says to the other, come on, my baby brother can kick it harder than that, right? That's, that's an insult, right? We shouldn't talk like that to each other. But let's rewrite the story. Let's say instead, and this is gonna sting and be difficult because uh, that's what blasphemies do. Uh, let's say instead that one of the young boys, uh, his, his mother has fought cancer for a year and a half And three months ago, lost the battle, lost her life to cancer. And part of why this boy's playing soccer is to just handle the grief that he's going through, losing his mom at a young age. And let's say that the first boy, instead of saying, come on, my baby brother can kick it harder than that. Let's say instead he says to them, and this is going to be difficult, come on, your mom's corpse can kick it farther than that. That's bad, right? Right? Even when you're already insulting each other, there's a line that you just don't cross. That's blasphemy, right? When the insult goes too far and crosses the line, we have crossed that line into blasphemy. So why does Jesus talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit all right, the the scribes had accused Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, of being possessed by a demon, and that leads him to warn them, "Hey, don't blaspheme the Spirit!" Right? No turning back if you do that. Right? Why? Why would that be? Well, because in the backstory of Mark, we see in chapter one, as Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and that begins his ministry. It's only after that that he starts doing these miracles and teaching with all of this authority. And so the idea is Jesus is full of the Spirit of God, and he is doing these miracles by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, do you see the connection between that and what the scribes are saying? He's doing these miracles by the power of God's Spirit. They're saying he's doing it by the power of Satan. So they're basically taking the Holy Spirit, the highest of the high, and they are calling him an agent of Satan the lowest of the low. You don't get much more insulting than that, right, to call the Spirit of God Satan. There's not much more distance, really, than you can do than that. And so Jesus says, whoa, be careful. You can even blaspheme me, but you can't blaspheme the Spirit like that. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, to to insult the Spirit of God in such a demeaning way, like calling him Satan. Satan. And part of the warning here is that Jesus' opponents are dangerously close to committing it. If you hold up the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God, and say, this thing is full of errors and we don't need it anymore, and you throw it out, you are dangerously close to blaspheming the Spirit that breathed out these words. If you say the church of God is full of nothing but whatever, hypocrites, oppressors, you just just pick from your buffet of accusations you want to throw at the church of God, you're dangerously close to blaspheming the spirit that indwells every Christian. That's how close his enemies are to the line as they speak these accusations against God and his people. That ought to give us pause and make us tremble at how serious this sort of thing is. So that's the first question. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Uh, second question is, why would somebody who does that never be forgiven? Right? That, it feels like that would be contrary to the message of the gospel. Uh, well, it, it is not because someone could blaspheme God's Spirit and then later on regret it and repent of it and come back and ask for forgiveness and be denied forgiveness. It's not that. Because that's not how Jesus works when sinners come to him seeking forgiveness, right? And this is a message all over the scripture, right? They who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's not an exception clause there. If you confess with your mouth and Jesus is Lord and re- believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, it says in the book of Acts. There's no exception to that. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. is open to anybody. So it will never be that someone comes to Jesus for forgiveness and does not receive it because everybody who comes to him receives it. So what, what could it be? Well, the best example we have is actually the scribes themselves. They are at this point escalating their accusation against Jesus, and they will come back with more and more fights and quarrels against him. Eventually, they will get to the point of conspiring to destroy him, and eventually they will succeed in their conspiracy, and they will murder him. Jesus will say to them in a different gospel, in Matthew, after pronouncing seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy, to these very people, he will say, how I long to gather you beneath my wings, but, some of you know the rest, but you were not willing, right? This is why those who blaspheme the Spirit of God will never be forgiven. He longs to gather them under his wings, but as he says of the scribes, you were not willing. It is because they become more willing to murder Jesus than they are to come to him and receive forgiveness from him. Now that is a hard truth, but it is the truth of God. The Bible gives us a grid for thinking about this. Uh, In the book of Ezekiel, it's most plain, but it's in a lot of places. Uh, He speaks of Is people having hard hearts. He says, you have stony hearts in your chest. That's why you don't follow my ways. He says, I'll remove the hard heart. And and by the power of my spirit, I'll give you you my spirit upon you. And I will give you a new heart, a soft heart, a heart of flesh. And then you'll walk in my ways, right? So basically, the idea is when we turn and come to Jesus, if, if you have gone in your life from opposing Jesus to receiving him, The way that happens is through the work of the Spirit of God, taking that heart of stone from you and giving you a heart of flesh. So so the only way we're going to turn and go to Jesus is by the work of the Spirit of God. What happens if that Spirit of God becomes so offended that he says, I'm done. I'm handing that person over to their own desires. There is then no way that that heart would ever soften In no way that that person would ever come to Jesus. And so Jesus says here, if you offend the spirit enough times, if you blaspheme the spirit like this, he will be done working on you. He will will wash his hands of you, and he will leave you to your own desires. And you'll then go the direction of the scribes, escalating your accusations against him more and more until you would rather murder Jesus than be forgiven by him. That is what Jesus means when he says the one who commits this sin will never be forgiven. It is not that you could ever get to a place where you would want to be forgiven but not receive it. That will never happen. But it is that you will get to a place so dark that you would never, ever be willing to receive forgiveness. And so we pause and we think of those loved ones we have that are opposing how close they are to the line. Christians, you are probably thinking of someone in your life right now who's close to that line. Would you pray for them with renewed zeal and fervor? Would you maybe even this afternoon call them and bring them the gospel one more time? Give them one more chance to respond. Never give up bringing the gospel to them. Now, one way Satan may try to twist this word is to to discourage you and make you think like that person that I mentioned early in this sermon. Oh, oh, they're they're so far gone. Surely they've blasphemed the spirit of God. There's no hope for them. I might as well give up. Uh, Let me just encourage you and say, if they ever cross the line, you won't know. The line is invisible. We don't even know for sure that the scribes have crossed it here because Jesus doesn't actually say that they did. He just warns them. And remember this, if I had been alive, and I bet if you had been alive, when Saul of Tarsus was doing his work, breathing out threats against the church, going door-to-door and rounding up Christians, and even overseeing the execution of Stephen... I don't know about you, but I sure would have thought that he had blasphemed the Spirit by then and that he had crossed the line, but God saw fit to save him. So we don't have eyes to see where everybody is on the spectrum. And that means you do not know where your loved one is. You must continue to pray and you must continue to plead with them. That's my word to Christians. We don't know when they have crossed it. We must, for all of those in our lives opposing the gospel, never give up bringing it to them. Let me speak one more time to those of you that are opponents to Jesus because the warning here is stern. I think we could feel it in the room right now. It's, It's a big one. It's a difficult one. Let me put it to you in these terms. As you are looking at him, as I'm looking at that cross right now, and backing away in resistance, you are backing closer and closer to the ledge of a cliff that you cannot see. Do not keep backing up, lest you fall off the ledge. Don't run from him. Run to him, because his arms are open and ready to receive you. So i call you even one more time. Turn from sin. Turn from resistance. Turn from all of these arguments that are losing game and receive the gospel of Jesus, for he is quick and he is ready to forgive. All right. Lastly, there there are some, and one of the tragedies of how Satan has twisted this thing. Satan loves to twist God's words, doesn't he? Uh, One way that he has twisted is there are many tender hearts out there, and this may even be some of you uh, who read that word and think of something you said a long time ago. Or just wonder, because you can't remember everything that you've ever said, oh no, have I ever done this, and is it impossible for me to be forgiven? There are a lot of people who feel this way. Uh, I had no idea of this recently, but to give you an idea of how many people wrestle with that, uh, our church has a a YouTube page. We put all our sermons up on YouTube. Uh, Sometimes you guys ask questions about the Bible, we'll put a video about that up there. There's probably 50 to 100 videos up there right now, most of them sermons. One of those videos is called What is Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And it's based on a question one of you asked about this text and the same version of it that's in Matthew. Would you believe that that video has 13 times as many views as any other video that we have put up on YouTube? And it's not because it's better or anything. No, it's because so many people go to Google and type in what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And it's given us as a church opportunity to talk with some of these people. And I have to tell you, their hearts are so broken. They are so tender and trembling. And it is so difficult just to convince them that God's grace is available to them. Satan has really done a number on some of these people. And so if that is you, I just want to encourage you with the gospel this morning. I hope you can see from the broader story here that as Jesus' words are directed at his vocal and opposing enemies, if you instead are afraid that you've sinned against him and want to come back, I hope you can see that your heart is not like the heart of these scribes, right? One is tender and longing to be forgiven, And the other one, like the scribes, is so opposed that it's eventually going to be part of murdering Jesus. These are two very different people. And this is good news. That means that it's not spoken to people who are in your shoes. It's not spoken to hearts like yours. And oh, that is good news. So the burden that is upon you, if you're just worried that maybe you have committed this sin in the past, and maybe you just can't be forgiven, the burden on you is to believe the promises of God when they are proclaimed from the word. When John three sixteen says that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, there is a burden placed upon you and that is in your fear and in your doubt and you must believe that word. When Isaiah 66, 2, as we saw in a sermon three or four weeks ago, says, This is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. If you are trembling, fearing that you've committed the sin, you must believe that word that says he looks especially on people like you, timid, humble people who tremble at his word. And as the word of God says that they be- that call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, the burden on you is to believe that word, to cast fear aside and to trust in the promises of God, which are made open to everybody, so that it won't be said of you, how often I long to gather you under my wings, but you are not willing. The only barrier between some and the gospel is their own willingness to believe it. And if that is you, cast aside that barrier and believe upon it. This has been a sobering morning and a serious morning. Uh, Let's turn to prayer. And uh, as we pray for those who are hardened against the gospel, you may be thinking of somebody and, and even go ahead and name them before God as we pray together. Let's pray.